morning. It's good to have you guys here this morning. Good to see you all. And uh, we're going to be in a couple of passages this morning, 1 Corinthians 15 and Galatians 1 and 2 in that order. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, I encourage you to do that. And, uh, and then if you want to look ahead to Galatians 1 or, and put your bulletin in there or something, or don't do that because you're going to write this morning, I promise you. All right, so, uh, so encourage you to, I, I want to encourage you this way too. Uh, grab a pen, grab a pencil. Um, I always w- would encourage you to take notes and things like that. Um, but, uh, and if you don't, if you want to do it on your phone, you want to take a picture of, you know, whatever we put on the screen, if it's helpful to you, I encourage you to do that as well. And uh, you're always welcome to do that. But this morning might be a morning where maybe you want to do that a little more even than most mornings. Um, we've been going through the series, God Questions. And so we've asked three questions prior to this. The first one was, does God matter? And our answer was, okay, good. I just want to make sure. <laughs> yes, we, that, our answer was yes. Uh, we had, our second question was, has God spoken? And we also answered yes. And we said primarily through his son, Jesus Christ. And then, uh, and, our, and our third question was, is Jesus God? And our answer again was, Yes, our answer is yes. And we're sort of answering another question we're going to answer yes to uh, this morning. And that is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And, um, and it's going to be, I, th- I think, an interesting morning. And, and all of these sermons have kind of had a, a little bit of a different uh, tone, if you will, to them. Uh, we're approaching them a little bit different. And this morning um, will be no exception. And I'll explain that to you kind of as we go. Um, finish this phrase. Ready? It's the greatest thing since sliced bread, right? Why? Because everybody likes sliced bread as opposed to, you know, you go to the restaurant, right? And you go to, and they give you the little, the miniature loaf of bread, right? You know what I'm talking about. And then it's hot. And then they give you the knife to cut it. And you go to cut it. What happens to the bread? You smash it. Who hates that? Raise your hand, right? That's why we say it's the greatest thing since Sliced bread, right? We like sliced bread. It makes sense. Slice it ahead of time. Make it, you know, so maybe let the pros do it so it doesn't smash. I don't know. Whatever. But we, we like, it's, it's a convenience. And, and there are lots of things throughout history, if you go back. I mean, the, the invention of the steam engine, you know, the, uh, the invention of the car. Things like that have, that have transformed uh, the way the world operates. Uh, this last year, there was something. We'll see if it ends up transforming the world. But I would venture to guess uh, and it's not even that much of a stretch that if they're successful in, in making this something that is common, it will transform our world for better or for worse. Um, have you, you guys ever heard of CRISPR technology? Anybody? Yeah, one? Yeah, a couple? C- CRISPR. So CRISPR is, um, this last year, they successfully edited uh, the, the uh, um, DNA of an embryo for the first time ever. Now, you might go, I don't know about you, but I mean, I'm, I'm like, hey, what could possibly go wrong? Like I, right? Like, that's a little scary. I don't know if, if, if you're like me, but I'm, I'm, they did what? And, and you, but you think about it, and, and this, could be, uh, this could be amazing in some ways, right? You know, they could go and they could rid uh, us of diseases like Huntington's or cystic fibrosis, things that are genetically driven, and, and you begin to think about the power of that, and you maybe begin to get excited about that, but then you begin to think about, I don't know, a bunch of Frankensteins walking around or something like that, or, or, or the mistakes that are made, or, or you begin to think about it, not even so much that, but what about, what about this idea of, of designer children, 
You know, the idea that our culture could start to think that, hey, I'm just going to have their, their DNA edited so that my kid looks a specific way or has a specific aptitude, they're super smart or athletic or whatever the case might be. And, and, and all of a sudden you begin to think about this and how, how this could potentially divide our society, it could actually breed more racism and those kinds of things, not less. And, and, and all of a sudden there's a distinction between those who can afford to do such a thing and those who can't, and this permanent divide between those who are poor and those who are rich and so on and so on and so on. And it could change the way that our world operates and thinks about human life and all kinds of things. Whether the impact on society is good or bad, it would certainly become huge as far as its impact on society. There are a lot of things in history as you go back and you begin to look at events that happened or things that were discovered or invented that changed modern history. I would venture to say that what we're going to talk about today has changed culture and history more than any other event in all of human history as we talk about the resurrection, its impact is huge. What if Jesus really did rise from the dead? How would that change the world we live in? What if the physical reality we experience isn't all there is to life? What if there is more than that? What, what if, as N.T. Wright says, there is actually life after life after death? What if it's true? We're going to try to answer that question, and I'm going to do something a little bit different today. But as we think about the question itself, what if it's true? What if it's not true? What if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Well, the Apostle Paul actually answers that question in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, when he says this, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, you know, anyway, you know, you know, you've heard YOLO, right? You guys all know what YOLO means. You only live once, right? YOLO, and everybody got, everybody got the shirt, or they put it in their text, or whatever. I wanna, I wanna get a shirt that says YOLT. You only live twice, right? <laughs> you only live twice, because I, I, you know, if Christianity is right, YOLO is false. You don't only have one life. You have more than one life. But if Christianity is not true, if, if there is no resurrection, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, just have fun in this life because after this life, that's all there is, right? But if Jesus did rise from the dead, he paved the way for our resurrection to eternal life as well. He paved the way for us to have a new life in a new heavens and a new earth. He gave actual hope beyond this lifetime for us. So I'm going to do something a little bit different today, and, and all these sermons in this series have been a little bit different, but specifically, I'm going to do two things that will be a little bit different. I am not going to, this morning, use, I am going to use the Bible, but I'm not going to use the Bible as a text that is inspired or inerrant. I believe it's inspired, and I believe it's inerrant. As a matter of fact, this is what our church believes. I'm going to put that, this up on the screen for you. Our church believes this, and you can go to our website um, where it says, We believe that the Bible is the Word of God, fully inspired and without error in original manuscripts, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that it has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. I believe this. Our church 
believes this, okay? But I'm not going to use the Bible in that way this morning, and I'm not going to do that because not everybody that you talk to in this world starts with that assumption or that presupposition. And so I want to present the resurrection to you in a way not only that gives you confidence that this actually happened, that this is a real thing, that we should put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we have good reason to do so, but also in a way that equips you to go out into the world and when there is a skeptic or somebody who doesn't accept that the Bible is the inerrant word of God or the inspired word of God, that you can still have a conversation with them about the resurrection. Okay, so that's why I'm doing that. But I will use... Scripture, the second reason is this, that just because you walked in the doors of a church this morning, my assumption is not necessarily that you are already where I am in this belief or where our church is in this belief. You may very well have your own questions, and you may very well not want to accept that the Bible is, is the inspired word of God. And so I want to help, help you with this uh, t- topic this morning in a way that you can receive it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to pre- present what's called a minimal facts argument. In other words, what this does is this says, here's the minimum facts we know, and today, this morning, it's specifically about the resurrection from history, and once we know those facts, you, you have to ask the question, what is the best way to explain these realities? And just to give you a heads up, I think it's that Jesus rose from the dead, and that we should put our faith and trust in him. That's my answer, but before we get to the answer, Let's actually go through uh, what we're going to do this morning. I have a three-part outline. I don't normally give you my outline ahead of time, but I'm going to because it's really easy. And I want you to know it, and I want you to memorize it. It's really, really hard to memorize. So I'm going to say it to you, and then you're going to repeat it back to me. Ready? You ready? Here we go. I'm going to say it. Ready? Living, dead, living. Now you say it. Good job. You guys are great. You guys are phenomenal. I don't care what Mike Miller said about you. Anyways. Uh, He's sitting right there, and I just like to throw people under the bus once in a while. But living, dead, living, that's my outline this morning, okay? It's a really simple outline. It's really easy to remember, so I hope you'll think about it. You'll remember it. The first step in the outline then is this. Jesus was alive. Jesus was alive. Now, I'm going to go through these first two points pretty quickly because I'll be, you know, honest with you. Almost no one denies this. Now, I I do realize that if you go on Google and you go, did Jesus really exist? All of a sudden, you'll come up with all these websites, right? And there'll be all these people, and they'll be saying, oh, no, here's why Jesus. And they'll they'll give you, and you might even glance at it, and and from an uninformed perspective, go, actually, those are some good questions. But can I just tell you something? That virtually no New Testament or historical scholar that studies Jesus that time in history, or the person of Jesus, nobody believes he does not exist. Let that sink in. I, I mean, nobody. There, there, you might find one or two out of the hundreds of thousands. As a matter of fact, don't take my word for it. And by the way, not all New Testament scholars are Christians. As a matter of fact, many of them are not. And so I'm not just referring to the Christian New Testament scholars. I'm referring to like all New Testament scholars and all historical scholars that study that period of time. They all, of all of them, they don't, they don't believe that Jesus did not exist. They all believe he existed. But don't take my word for it. I'm going to quote Bart Ehrman. Why would I quote him? Because he is an agnostic who describes himself as an agnostic bordering on atheism. This is what he says. Few of these mythicists, that's what he calls the people who believe that Jesus did not exist, are actually scholars trained in ancient history, religion, biblical studies, or any cognate field. 
there are a couple of exceptions of the hundreds or thousands of them. He goes on. One may well choose to resonate with the concerns of our modern and postmodern cultural um, despisers of established religion or not. In other words, you're not concerned about that. But surely the best way to promote any such agenda is not to deny what virtually every sane historian on the planet, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, pagan, agnostic, atheist, what, what have you, has come to conclude based on a range of compelling historical evidence, whether we like it or not, Jesus certainly existed. This is not a guy who is friendly to Christianity. This is the guy who does debates with the people who believe in Jesus. Public debates at colleges and universities around the world. You can go on YouTube and and look up Bart Ehrman debate, and you'll see all kinds of Christian guys who have debated Bart Ehrman on some of these very similar, same issues that we're talking about this, this morning. As a matter of fact, Bart Ehrman doesn't only believe that Jesus existed, but he actually recently wrote a book about he was tired of answering the question because people would come up to him and go, how do you know Jesus even existed? And the skeptic, the agnostic uh, bordering on atheism, he wrote a book backing up with historical evidence that Jesus actually existed. A book about it, and it's called, Does Jesus Exist? That's what it's called. That's the title of the book. I'm not necessarily recommending this book to you. I just want you to know that this guy wrote it and, his, and it was in support of the idea that Jesus actually existed. All right, enough about that because my assumption is that, that you already believe Jesus existed and that if you, didn't believe, if you don't believe Jesus existed, just go read, well, you can read Bart Aaron's book, I guess. Just don't believe everything in it, all right? <laughs> but, but, you, but he certainly did. This is foundational. All the scholars, all the historians, they all believe this. Nobody really doubts this. It's a historical fact, okay? This leads me to the second point that I hope is abundantly obvious. Jesus died. Jesus died. This is also a historical fact. Virtually every single scholar that studies New Testament or that studies ancient history, especially the first century, they all believe this with one exception. Muslims do not believe he died on the cross. The reason that they don't believe he died on the cross is because the Quran, which they considered their holy writings, says it only appeared as if Jesus died on the cross. So in order to stay committed to the Quran, they must also stay committed to the idea that Jesus did not die on the cross. They, they have all kinds of theories. Some, some will come and say that it was like Jesus' evil twin brother. I'm not making that up. That wasn't a joke. I know you might think that's a one-liner from John, but it's not, okay? That's what they believe. Or it was Judas and which is, is problematic, or, or, or something else. They come up with these other theories to su- support the idea that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Um, now, you can choose to believe the Quran, which was written 600 years after the event, or perhaps what might be wiser of us is to appeal to something that was put together within the first five years for sure, and some scholars would even say within the first six months of the event itself. And we're going to do that this morning, and it's actually found in the Bible, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And it comes from the Apostle Paul. And I will tell you how we know it's so early later on, but for now, let's just begin to look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. It says this, For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and it goes on. And we'll cover the rest of it 
in a little bit. Now, I want to explain something to you about this 1 Corinthians passage. Not only was it written within the first, uh, or put together within the first five years of the actual event, but it was a creed. It was something that was often repeated uh, in, in, in worship gatherings and things like that. They would say it together, much like if you go to certain traditions uh, of Christianity, you might hear the Lord's Prayer that would be said during a service, or you might hear the Apostles' Creed that is said during a service. That corporately, they all say it together and, and, and that kind of thing. And so th- this is a creed like that, that in, in the early days of the church would have been used as, in its services. And it, they would have repeated it together. And part of the reason that you do that is because in an oral tradition, where people don't always have things available to them in written form, they would have things available to them that they memorized, and so they would put together these creeds so that they would say it together, and they would memorize it, and as they left that gathering, it would still be in their minds and in their heads. It was a common way of teaching. Now, you begin to say, well, how do we know that it came within the first five years? And I'm going to cover that in a little bit, but before we get there, I want to I give you some of the historians who talk about De- uh, Jesus' death, and I want to give you what they say about it. And these are, none of these, by the way, are Christian uh, scholars or historians that I'm going to quote to you. Now, I could quote Christian ones, but then you can go, well, you're just quoting a bunch of Christians about what Christians believe. I want to quote to you a bunch of non-Christians about what we believe. So Gerd Ludemann, German New Testament scholar and historian, uh, he taught at the University of Göttingen. I don't know if that's how you say it, but uh, in, in, in Germany, and uh, And this is what he says, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. In other words, it's not in question, right? Then you go to John Dominic Crossan. Now, John Dominic Crossan, he is a guy who was part of what was called uh, the Jesus Seminar. The Jesus Seminar was a, a very, very, very liberal group of people who got together, and they went through the New Testament and especially the Gospels, and they highlighted it in all these different colors depending on what they thought was reliable and not reliable. And so they would highlight the things that we think, oh, yeah, this, is, this almost certainly happened, and they'd highlight that in one color. And the things that they said, oh, that, that didn't happen, uh, that, there's no way that happened. They'd highlight that in a different color, and they had a range of colors. And the things they, they highlighted in there's no way that happened were like usually miracles and things like that, and there's no way that happened. They just, they just write it off ahead of time. So John Dominic Crossan was one of those guys, and here's what he says about the crucifixion. There is not the slightest doubt about the fact of Jesus' crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Marcus, um, Marcus Borg He's also one, a Jesus seminar guy. He said this, Jesus' crucifixion is the most certain fact about the historical Jesus. Bart Ehrman, I'll come back to him. He's famous for his, his book, Misquoting Jesus, and, and other books as well from a skeptic's perspective. He is a very, very legitimate New Testament scholar. His credentials are impeccable as far as that is concerned. And here's what he says. There are a few things we can say with virtual certainty about Jesus. For example, he was a Jewish preacher from rural Galilee, who made a fateful trip to Jerusalem and was crucified by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And I could go on, and I could go on, and I could go on, with quote after quote after quote after quote of New Testament scholars, of historians, who look back at the first century and look back at the person of Jesus from a historical perspective, and they say, there is absolutely no doubt this guy died. 
Now, I haven't even gone into the Gospels, and there's reason for that. I'm not going to use them that much. I could, however. I could go to the Gospels, and I could say, look, the Gospels are reliable historically, which they are. I could say we have good reason to trust these, and I, then, I could, then I could talk about how he was, he was beaten within a half inch of his life, that he was, uh, the amount of blood he lost, the fact that he was put on a cross, the fact that they took a sword and punctured his, the cavity around his heart, and that a watery-type flub, uh, substance flowed out, and that that medically signifies that he was dead, 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 dead. I could do all of that, but that's in the Gospels. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say it's in this early cr- church creed that comes very early in history, and it says he died. And what do we need for a resurrection? We need somebody who was living, and they died, right? In order to set the stage for a resurrection, that's what we need. That's what we have here. We have, we, we have a Jesus who was living without question. We have a Jesus who died without question. The third point is where the controversy lays. Jesus was seen alive after his crucifixion. This is where everybody gets all upset and crazy, right? They're like, oh, there's no way. And here's what happens. Now I, wanna, I need to stop here and, and, get, and talk about this for a second. Here's what happens. People who are committed to a materialistic or naturalistic view of the world come to Christianity and other religions, and they say there is no, nothing supernatural. And since there's nothing out of the natural, the materialistic, that since none of that can exist, then a priori, to use a nice little Latin phrase, right? Like, in other words, ahead of time, they've already decided that it can't be true without ever even considering the evidence. It happens all the time. And people just, miracles don't happen. People don't rise from the dead. Therefore, it's not true. That's all I need to know. And that's where they start and that's where they end. Is it any surprise that they end there? However, if you will will set aside a materialistic or naturalistic worldview, if you will set that aside this morning and be open to just following the evidence where it leads, then maybe, just maybe you might come to a different conclusion. Which, by the way, I will actually do this with people. If I'm having a conversation about this and they have that perspective, I will basically put them in a corner where they have to either commit themselves to being open to the evidence or they just go, I'm not going to listen to it anyways. And if they're not going to listen to it anyways, guess what I'm not going to do? Waste my time, right? I've got better things to do than argue with somebody who doesn't care what I say. They're not going to be convinced anyways. And so I'll literally, I'll literally look at somebody and I'll say, say, how about this? How about we examine the evidence, examine uh, what it is, and are you willing to go where the evidence leads, setting aside your naturalistic or materialistic worldview and just considering the evidence? And if they say yes, then they've committed to it, right? Now they've got to listen. See, you trap people. This is a good thing. Jesus did this all the time. Right? I, I, love, I love how Jesus operates, and he did that all the time. He would put people in a place where they have to consider what he is saying. And so I will actually do that with people. So let's return to that creed that the Apostle Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which, by the way, the reason we can use 1 Corinthians and the reason we can use Galatians, which we'll use in a, in a couple minutes, is, is because of this. Because New Testament scholars and historians who study this, this, this period and, and, and things, they all agree that the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. They all agree that the Apostle Paul wrote Galatians. They all agree to it. They, they all admit it. And, and not only that, and I think one of the reasons they really like the Apostle Paul is because if you read Romans, if you read his writings, what you get is a sense of his intellectual ability. He is a first-class 
first-rate scholar, not just based on his education, but also based on his writing. And they recognize that when they read his writing. And so they like the Apostle Paul. And, and, and there's about six books which even very liberal, agnostic, atheistic scholars will agree Paul wrote these books. Two of those books are 1 Corinthians and Galatians. And so we're using those this morning. The other reason we're using those is what we're going to find is that these epistles were actually written before, these gos- before the Gospels. And so what we're looking at today was written, 1 Corinthians is written in about 55. Some of the Gospels at the earliest might have been written in the late 50s uh, or, or, or early 60s. But some scholars, especially liberal ones, will, will, will put them way later, right? And so we're not going to really use those this morning. So here's what we have as we return to this creed, starting in verse 3 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. It says this, For what I received, I pass on to you as a first importance. I know we read this verse, we're reading it again. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, And then after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. All right, so we have a couple things here. We have this creed, and it comes from within the first five years of, of when Jesus rose from the dead. And here's how we know that. I told you I'd tell you, tell you how we know that. So here's how we know that. You ready? First, we have in verse 3 of chapter 15, it says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, Paul is saying, Look, this creed that I'm now passing on to you, Corinthian church, I received this. In other words, he's saying, I didn't write this. This isn't original with me. I'm taking something I received from somebody else, and now I'm passing it on to to you, okay? It's a creed. He's passing it on to the church, and he's gotten it from somewhere. So you begin to ask the question, well, clearly this predates Paul's writing of this, so where did he get it from? Well, you turn to Galatians chapter 1. Starting in verse 18, it says this, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's, the Lord's brother, Okay, so here's Paul. He says, after three years, three years after what? If you go and you read the, first, the earlier verses, it's three years after his conversion. Where was Paul's conversion? You guys maybe know this story, right? Paul's going to Damascus and he has this vision of Jesus and he is a persecutor of the church. He is a skeptic. He is anti-Christianity, anti-church. Not only is he anti-Christianity, anti-church, he doesn't just post on Facebook, man. He goes out and he executes people who follow Jesus. Like, he was adamantly, zealously against Christianity. He has this experience. He sees Jesus, the risen Savior. That's about two years after the actual event of the resurrection. And then now he says, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Now, we're going pr- to do something. You guys ready? This is audience participation here. Get your math brains on. I know some of you are, oh, no, math. This is Sunday morning, pastor, not math morning, all right? I know. Get your math brains on. You ready? I know they teach math in different ways, but I'm pretty sure that you'll all understand this math, okay? You guys ready? Two years after the resurrection, Paul has his experience with Jesus, right? Three years after that, he goes to Jerusalem. Count it. Ready? Look, and then when I say go, you say what two plus three is. Ready? Oh, 
you when I say go. I see how you guys are. Rebellious bunch you are. Ready? Go. It's five, right? So within five years of the actual resurrection, Paul goes to Jerusalem. Who does he spend time with? Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. That's who Cephas is. And James, the little half-brother of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've got a little brother. I got a bunch of little brothers. And they are my biggest skeptics in the entire world, right? Amen to that. If you got a little brother, you getting ready? Yeah, somebody, okay, really? Like all your little brothers, like think you're the greatest? Yeah, I, I need your brothers, all right? Anyway, so James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, now if, you, if you go back and you look, G- James was a skeptic of, his, of his, older, his bigger brother. He was a skeptic. He didn't believe in Jesus. That part is recorded in the Gospels. You don't necessarily need that, but, but he didn't believe in Jesus. He was a skeptic of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus' family thought he was crazy. They thought he lost it, right? So he got, you got Peter, who denied Christ the night he was crucified three times, right? And you got James, the, half, the little half-brother of Jesus, who ended up writing the book of James, and, and, and he was a skeptic of Jesus. So this is who Paul spends time with. Now, here's what's interesting. If you jump down, or if you look at verse 18, in which we did, and it, where, where it says to get acquainted with Cephas, with, with Cephas, the, the word that's translated in the NIV to get acquainted is hystereo. And, and you, this is where we get the word history from, but that's not the point. The point isn't that. The, the point is this, that if you actually look at the Greek, probably a better translation, I don't, you know, sometimes the translations, they, they have reasons for translating things the way they translate them. But probably a better translation would be to interview them. This, the idea here isn't just that he get, went, went up to say, hey, man, let's, let's hang out and play some card games. Like, that's not what Paul was doing. He went up there for the specific purpose of interviewing the church leaders. That's why he went there. And so he goes and he interviews. He, he interviews the eyewitnesses. Peter was an eyewitness. Eyewitness. James was, grew up with Jesus. The eyewitness. That's who he went to talk to. And so he goes and he talks to these guys and he receives this creed that the early church had started to put together and he, and he, and he now passes it on to the church in Corinth within five years. Now some would say that it's even earlier than that because those things take time. They don't just come up out of nowhere. Sometimes it takes a little while for those things to come up, but they can come up very pretty quickly. And in an oral tradition where it's important to remember things, scholars like Marcus Borg and James Dunn, atheistic, anti-Christian type scholars, some of them believe it came up within the first six months of the resurrection. But even if it was five years, even if it came up the week before Paul interviews these guys, historically, this is unbelievable, incredibly close testimony to what the early church was saying. And this is what they were saying. This passage we find in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Now, staying in Galatians chapter 2, he, he again goes back to Galatians, and th- or uh, to Jerusalem, sorry. And this is, this is important. And starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. So Barnabas and Titus uh, accompany him as they go to Jerusalem. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. Listen to what Paul was doing here, ready? Because he's about to tell you. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. 
he was checking his message, his gospel message, with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Verse 6. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Did you hear that? They added nothing to my message. So verse 9. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. In other words, Paul goes out and he's been preaching this gospel. He's been saying Jesus died. He was crucified. He was buried. He rose again. Put your faith and trust in him. He's coming again. This is what, what Paul was preaching. When it says the gospel, there is no expression of the gospel outside of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. It doesn't exist in the New Testament. This is what, Jesus, or what Paul was checking. He went to Jerusalem. He wanted to make sure that what he was preaching is the same as what they, the eyewitnesses, were preaching. And he didn't only check with Cephas, Peter, and the bro- little brother, the little half-brother of, uh, of, of Jesus, James. But this time he also checked with John. Again, another eyewitness. John was the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was one of the closest people to Jesus, the closest of his disciples to Jesus who lived with him. And he, he was an eyewitness. So Paul goes back to Jerusalem. He checks with Peter. He checks with the half little brother of Jesus, James. And he checks with John to make sure that this gospel that he had been preaching was right. And what does the text say? And they added nothing. In other words, they went stamp of approval. They offered the right hand of fellowship. Paul, you got this right. You're preaching exactly what happened, exactly what we were eyewitnesses to. This is 100% right, Paul. Keep it up. Go preach to the Gentiles. We're going to preach to the Jews. We're going to take our, 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 our direction of our ministries, but we're preaching the same gospel. So what do we have? We have by historical standards, extremely early testimony in a creed that Jesus was seen alive after he had died. That is what we call a resurrection. More than that, this creed was passed on by Peter, J- Peter and James. Peter was the, first, was the first-hand eyewitness. James was a skeptical, unbelieving little brother who became a believer and an eyewitness. And the second time Paul went, we have John, another eyewitness, confirming what Paul had been preaching, which is the same message he received on the Damascus Road from no other than Jesus himself. Furthermore, Paul says Jesus appeared to three individuals and three groups in that creed. Three individuals and three groups. This is impressive. This isn't a creed that Paul says, hey, believe Jesus rose from the dead because it makes you feel better. That's not the creed. The creed isn't believe Jesus rose from the dead because it's a nice story and we all like a really good story. He didn't say believe Jesus rose from the dead because we've got to tell our little kids something at night before they go to bed and that's a nice story to read to our kids at night. That's not what he said. He said, he said I pass on to you, what was passed on to me, that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he appeared 
And he goes through three individuals and three groups of people. And now, here's what happens. People come and say, oh, I know how this works. As a matter of fact, some of the scholars I've quoted, this is what they say. Oh, it's mass hallucination. Okay, can I just tell you about something? Where does a hallucination take place? In my brain, right? My, if I have a hallucination, I shouldn't say my hallucinations, right? Like I, like I have them all the time. We're listening to a crazy guy. It's great. If I were to have a hallucination, you know what you would not be able to do? Have it with me. Like, we can't share it. Now, I might be able to tell you about it, but we can't share it. If you have a hallucination, I can't enter into your mind and participate in the hallucination with you. This is, they've done studies on this. For whatever, I don't know why they need to do studies on this. I don't know why this isn't just plainly obvious to, like, everyone. But they've done studies on this. Hallucinations, group hallucinations, they don't happen ever. Never, ever, 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 never. There's never been a recorded group mass hallucination. And only about 7% of the population has hallucinations. But all 12 of the disciples had one together. Not only that, not only, is it, not only do all 12 have to have one together, but now the 500 have to have it together. Now, here's, the, here's what's interesting about the 500, right? Paul says there's this group of 500. Jesus appeared alive after he was resurrected to all 500. Now, here's the thing. I don't know, you know, you guys, some of the ladies aren't going to like this, and I apologize ahead of time, but it's not my fault. It's just the way it was, all right? In the first century, they often only counted the men. They didn't count the ladies. Now, I know your NIV translation says brothers and sisters, but if you, the Greek actually is only in the, in the, in the masculine. So, so it could just mean brothers. It might mean brothers inclusive of sisters over 500. But oftentimes in the first century, they didn't count the women and the children. They only counted the men. In other words, there were 500 men. It wasn't just, so it wasn't just 500. It was actually probably way more than that. Not that we need more than that. And Paul says this about them. Some of them have fallen asleep. In other words, they've died. But some of them are still alive. Now, if you're trying to verify a historical event in recent history where some of the people are still alive, it's a, it's a traumatic, amazing, crazy event, and you want to understand what happened there, what might you want to do? Go talk to them, right? Who was there? In other words, Paul is saying, look, if you want to check to see if you actually rose from the dead, Go talk to them. Go talk to them. This is, this is amazing. Now, here's the thing. Virtually every New Testament scholar and historical scholar who studies the first century will agree to all of this. All of it. All of it. And as a matter of fact, let me show you. Because some people go, Really? They'll agree to all of it. They'll agree to all of this. What do skeptics have to say about this? Here's what Gerd Ludeman says. He's one of the, uh, I, think, I think his theory, by the way, is the, um, uh, the hallucination theory. There's some other theories, too, which I don't have time to cover them all this morning. But none of them work. Gerd Ludeman says this. It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Okay, that's Bart Ehrman, agnostic, bordering on atheistic, New Testament scholar, by the way, trained under evangelical scholars. This is what he says. 
we can say with complete certainty, complete certainty, that some of his disciples at some later time insisted that he soon appeared to them, convincing them that he had been raised from the dead. E.P. Sanders, Duke University. Give a list of accepted historical events. And this is the list he, he gives. The following is a, or part of the list. The following is a historical fact. The earliest disciples saw the risen Jesus. I don't know how exactly they saw him, but they saw him. I don't know about you, but when I begin to look just at the historical facts that are widely accepted by the vast majority of New Testament scholars, the evidence is overwhelming. I got to believe in a risen Savior. I got to believe in a risen Jesus. Now, here's the thing. These people still are not Christians. It's not like they went, oh my goodness, there's the evidence. There's a risen Jesus. I'm going to become a Christian. They don't. They continue to not be Christians. It's very possible to do that. Not only does God matter, by the way, not only has he spoken, not only was the divine eternal son of God, not not only was Jesus him, the divine eternal son of God who took on human flesh, but now he rose from the dead, which then you begin to think, if Jesus rose from the dead and you go back to the gospels, the reason nobody accepts the, or not nobody, the reason some scholars don't accept the gospels is because they have miracles in them. But then you think, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, then what's the big deal about walking on water? Like, that's not hard. I mean, is it really that hard to, to, to believe that God created an entire universe and that, and that he took on human flesh, that he rose, and if he rose from the dead, that he just commanded the storm to stop and to listen? Is that really that big of a deal? Is it really that big of a deal that he made the blind see or that he made the lame walk? I mean, that's all child's play. If you can rise from the dead. Paul, later, 1 Corinthians 15, says this. Starting in verse 17, it says, If Christ has not, been raised from the, has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, Paul comes and says, and says, look, if you believe in a Jesus that did, that did not rise from the dead, if there is no resurrection, then this whole thing, you could be home already watching whatever game is on right now. You could be up in the mountains hanging out. You could be doing other things, having more fun. But Paul goes on, but, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In other words, if he has risen from the dead, it changes everything. Everything is different. How we understand this world, how we live in this world, everything is different. I want to give you a quote by Abdu Murray. He was a former Shiite Muslim who became a Christian. He talks about the resurrection. This is what he says. I often put it this way. The reason it took took me nine years is not that the answer, answers were hard to find. I actually found them fairly early. I wrestled with them for years. The answers aren't hard to find, but they are hard to accept. And I think that's not just true, not just of Muslims. I think that's true of anybody, quite frankly. A lot of people will come to this place 
when the evidence is overwhelming, Jesus rose from the dead. It's a historical fact. It's widely accepted. I listened to Michael Okono, who's another author who writes a lot about the resurrection. He was debating an atheist. I can't remember the guy. I think the last name was Shapiro. It's not Ben Shapiro. It's a different Shapiro, just in case you're wondering. All right, Ben Shapiro's not an atheist, but I think his last name was Shapiro, though. And, uh, and this guy basically set up, got, got up and said, and they were asking the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? This guy basically got up and said, well, so what if he did? What's the big deal? It's weird, but no big deal. I'm like, are you serious? This changes everything. This, this changes the whole concept of life after death. If, if somebody can rise from the dead and ascend to the Father and sit at his right hand and, and be the mediator for us, and then there is life after death is not that big of a deal. I mean, it's not that hard to believe. If there is an eternal life, it's not that hard to believe that there's a God who provides a way for us to get there and that it's found in Jesus Christ. It changes everything. It changes how I live my life, how I look to the future. It gives me hope beyond this life. This is the Jesus we follow and we worship. This is why we worship him. This is why we worship him, amen? Let's pray. Dear God, you are so good.